Today is, uh, is our finishing uh, our exclamation point on the series called Overcome. And we're going to see this morning about how God overcomes some of the labels that the world puts on us. And every time that I mention the labels, sometimes we go into like the negative side of that, those things. And, and I want to say too, this morning, we're going to see that, that sometimes those labels are in a positive sense. So for example, if you walk into our uh, staff office room area, you're going to see that our office manager, Cherie Ellison, has organized that thing so much. If you're an organizational person, you'll think that you just died and went to organizational heaven. The wall in, in the office storage area is wall to wall, floor to ceiling, shelving. And it's like that shelf, it fits perfectly in there, like not an inch to spare. It's amazing. It's like they built it exactly for this space. They had encounter in mind. And then, and then every the square inch of that wall is filled with bank boxes with like notes taped to the front of it with the encounter up down arrow logo and then below just a list typed out of everything inside of that box. It's impressive. So much so that when I was looking for a stapler not too long ago, I walk in the room and I just stare at this thing for like three minutes looking for the stapler, not realizing it was next to the printer, which is somewhat obvious and not labeled because like who has to label a stapler? Apparently for me. <laughs> But like you go into this place and you know where everything is on that wall because it's so accurately labeled. And that's what we're talking about this morning is about who has the right to put labels on things. Who has the right even to put label on people? And we're going to see is this book, uh, The Grace of God, there's three categories that are described there about who has the right to put labels on things. And they're the manufacturer, they're the owner, and they're the purchaser of the thing. So if you make something, a computer, or if you make a car, let's say you're a particular motor company based in the Detroit area and you make a car, you have the right and the privilege to put your blue oval stamped on the front of every single one of those cars that you built. You get to do that. You're the manufacturer. And then if you... Uh, if you buy that car, if you own that car and drive it off the lot, it's now yours. You get to go to our starting point desk and pick up one of those stickers, those encounter stickers, and put it on the back of the car because you own the car. Unless you're a bad driver, in which case I'm going to suggest a water bottle or a laptop to put that sticker onto. And then if you're not only the manufacturer or the owner, but if you purchase a thing, if you're like me or my family, we buy a lot of our stuff at garage sales which is awesome. In fact, the vast majority of my power tools, just a little insight into my world, came from garage sales. And, uh, and because it's West Michigan, I get to write out, or I get to cross out with a Sharpie the name of the previous owner. And because it's West Michigan, I cross off Kurt Van Slotten. Sorry, Kurt, wherever you are. I bought your drill. So now I write Dirk Van Eyck on the drill, the power tools, because they're mine. I purchased it. I bought them. I get to assign labels to those things. But unfortunately, the manufacturer, the owner, the purchaser aren't the only people, the only ones that assign labels. I think many of us, many of you have probably had the experience of somebody, fairly or not, assigning you a label. And it sticks with you, sometimes for far longer than we care for it to. As a kid growing up on the playground, I had a rough name uh, for a little while there, in kindergarten especially, and then on into uh, all my life. No, Dirk, D-I-R-K. It, it was tough because it's just, it's rich fodder, you know, for, for kindergartners, right? So I remember kindergarten, 
limited vocabulary and insults. Uh, kids like scooping up the playground sand, like walking behind, like dirt, dirt, is your name dirt? And it's like very clever, right? At a Christian school, nonetheless. Uh, and then it, as the vocabulary of my classmates expanded, they realized fourth grade, fifth grade, Dirk rhymes with jerk. And so, hey, we can call Dirk the jerk. It's hilarious. You're the first person that's ever thought of that, I guarantee. Until one label came by, and this is my own fault, and I still remember sixth grade, Mr. Slochter's science classroom. I had to write my name on the board. I was probably in trouble for something. Uh, but I walk up to the front, and I spell out my name, D-I-R-K, except for it wasn't R, because I like, actually hooked my R a little bit, so it looked like a C. And if you're a sixth grade boy, that thing is sticking with you for life, or at least into seventh grade. <laughs> as is the case for me. I mean, those labels, name calling, whatever it is that students like pick on, it has a way of like sticking with you and remembering it, even to the point of sharing it with church on a stage because this is cheaper than therapy for me. <laughs> it has a way of sticking on us and God has a way of doing something with it. So I wanna go to the story in the Bible about God doing something with one of the, one of the labels that has stuck on someone. We're going to go to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. You can follow along with Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Also, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Joshua 2, and I'll just kick it off and then explain some of the context around. Joshua 2, verse 1, it says that Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from India. Pronounce that Shittim. You're welcome for that. Uh, what's going on in the story is that the people of God have come out of Egypt, out of this land of slavery. They've been wandering around in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, but this waiting time is not wasted time. God was doing something. He was teaching them. He was growing them. He was showing them how to live obediently and with trust in a land where they had very, very little so that by now when they came into a land of having a lot, they would learn and they would know how to live in that new area of plenty, how to live there well. And they're just outside. The thing is about Shatim, why well, I wanted to mention it, they've been here before. They've been to this place before and it was a land for them that was marked by dismal failure. This is a place where they were faced head to head with temptation in the past stories in the Bible, and they failed. And so when they come at it again, I just, I just want us to see that they're like re-entering this season of failure and wondering, is this too going to stick on us? Joshua says, go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. Maybe you know the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, where they march around the city, not an army, it's a marching band, and then the, wall, the walls came a tumbling down. Okay, let's try. The walls came uh, tumbling down. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know the song. This is the prequel to that one. This is the story before the story in Jericho. Um, so the spies go in and they went and they entered this house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Immediately in the story, we're not struck with like good vibes from these two spies. Uh, they're coming from Shittim. It's like this loaded place of giving into temptation. And then they go and they visit Rahab's house. And we're like, this is not a good sign. The good sign though is those two spies are not the point of the story. Those two spies sent from Israel in the camp to go check out the land are not who God is using 
to tell their story. They're not the main characters, the protagonists. They're props in the story. It's a story that God is telling through Rahab. But of course, that's not her full name, Rahab, because her name is used eight times in the Bible she's referenced. And in six out of the eight times that Rahab's name is used, you would roll call listed off as being prostitute, comma, Rahab the. That's her full name. That's who she is, first, middle, and last name. That's how she's referred to the majority of the times in the Bible. That's the, that's the label that sticks on her throughout her entire life and on into the history even afterwards. Labels have a way of doing that, don't they? Of sticking on, whether we want them to or not, whether they deserve it or not, whether that person had the right to label us or not. How many of you guys, uh, you, you go to an event of some kind and you wear a name tag, hello my name is, you write your name on there, uh, stick it on, and then you go home and forget to take the name tag off. And then you put it in the washer and the dryer. You know what I'm talking about, some of you? Uh, what happens to it? The, the adhesive. I brought a, a shirt with me here. This is what happens, right? This is like... This is, by the way, my son's shirt. This is not mine. You're wondering, like, what does that guy do on the weekends um, when he's not at church? No, uh, this is, uh, this is my, my son's shirt, and this is one of our kids' labels. We suck it on the back of it because otherwise he would just take it off immediately and we'd lose our kid forever. We're not going to lose your kid forever, I promise. Even without a sticker, we'll figure it out. We, we have the know-how. Uh, but what happens is we stick it on the back. We get a sticker. He gets a sticker. We match him up at the end. We get our kid back. We forget to take the sticker off. I forget to take this sticker off, put it in the washing machine, put it in the dryer. That adhesive is now stuck on there until Jesus comes back. This is not coming off. It's like the, the shadow label that sticks on us no matter what. And some of you have a shadow label that is stuck on you no matter what. And you want your first and foremost identity to be in Christ, raised to new life in Christ. But for some reason, like this old life in this old country keeps getting you down, keeps claiming you back. And you want to say no, but the shadow sticker remains. Rahab's shadow sticker remains. There was a um, woman who came up to me one time who told me that her she didn't use this language, but I will. A shadow sticker, stat, shadow label that was put on her that just drove her crazy was the, was the label single parent. Because she's going, why can't I just be a parent? Why do I have to have this other thing stuck onto me and to, and to walk around under that label? Why do I have to walk around with, with single parents in front so that other people can make these assumptions about the resources or lack thereof maybe that I have to give to my kid or the time or lack thereof that I have to give to my kid or the love or lack thereof that I have to give to my kid? Why does all of this have to be called into question by sticking that, that label of single parents onto the front? Why can't I just be a parent? Other people have said the same thing about being, about being a former athlete or being an unemployed builder? Why do these things have to be like stuck on in my identity? First is that I'm former or first that I'm unemployed or first that I'm single or first that I'm struggling. I'll tell you a huge one, a huge one in the, in the church is a label that gets stuck on people as a gay Christian. 
I've had the opportunity of, uh, of chatting with somebody. I got permission to share the story. This is a little while ago. They've since moved on. Um, they came to the church here and, uh, and it was just asking these questions about the kind of church. And I had the chance to speak openly and honestly and ask a few of my own. And I just got to say, why, why here? Like this, this is a pretty like evangelical feeling church. And you know, I don't know what people are going to say, what people are going to think, what might come your way. Don't you think, isn't it, do you get the sense that it's kind of dangerous stepping into an environment like this? And I went on to say, I, I just, I wonder like why here? I'm, I, I, we're, we're church for all people. We love that you're here, but like, why not even go to another church on the street that has a sign out in the yard to make sure that you know you're welcome included there? Why, why risk it here? And I'm never gonna forget the answer that she gave. It was so profound and it was so good and it was so wide stretching. She said, I don't wanna go to a place. I don't wanna worship with a community, with a people where my first label where my first identifying marker is my sexual orientation or anything else about me except for the fact that I'm a child of God. I don't want to be known as a gay Christian. I want to be known as a child of God. I want to be known as a Christian. And everything after that, including my sexual orientation, comes in line, comes after that one defining characteristic that my God gave me as Christian. And then afterward, at 9.15, I had so many people come up to me and tell me about what their identifying marker is and how they so desperately want it to be as a child of God, as forgiven, as raised with Christ. That first identifying marker, shadow labels all coming second to that thing. But some, listen, something funny happens. Something strange happens when we wear the label long enough, doesn't it? Like the label, it, it once described our past, but once we wear it for long enough, it, it starts to take on this power to determine our future. Listen, listen to what I'm talking about in the story of Rahab in verse four. Um, but the woman, that's Rahab, had, I'm sorry, the king of verse two, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here to spy out the land. That's how terrible these spies are. They get caught like immediately. We know the story isn't about them. Okay, verse three. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. So the king, he doesn't even, he doesn't go to her house directly. He doesn't just send an army to the house. He just assumes that because she is who she is, because she wears the shadow label that she does in her profession, he just assumes that he knows exactly how she's going to react when they send word and say, hey, bring the guys out. The king of Jericho is going, I know you. Maybe I don't know you exactly, but I know your people. I know your kind. I know the type of people who wear the label that you do. And I know that you're going to fold immediately in the presence of danger. Because the king knows that she's worn that label for long enough and now it doesn't just describe her past, it is beginning to determine her future. An example of this, the University of Connecticut did a study a, a while back 
where they followed these eighth grade students who are all performing equally well. And, and some of them carried on the label of uh, positive words like advanced and smart, intelligent, good things. Others of these eighth graders who performed at a similar level, for whatever reason, were given negative labels on them. Uh, students like slow or behind or struggles. And then they watched as these students headed on from eighth grade for a year into ninth grade and passed into high school. And they found that what happened with these students is actually that the students started to diverge into their corresponding uh, labels that they were given. So the advanced students' GPAs would rise. And then the students who did perform similarly, who were given the labels of slow or remedial, started, started to decline as they tracked these scores. Because these labels that they wore didn't just describe their past, they started to define their future. My wife can name the time and place when a seventh grade teacher told her that she wasn't good at math. And even though every standardized test that she's taken since, and she's a PhD and done a lot of them, ACT, GRE, SAT, and there's a bunch more, I'm sure, have confirmed otherwise, performing better than me, she will still, to this day, argue with me, saying, I am better at math than she is, because she believed 20 years ago a label that's put on her. If we wear the labels long enough, they don't just describe our past, they begin to determine our future unless God breaks in. This is such a wild part of the story. She doesn't act like the king of Jericho expects her to act, verse four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yeah, uh, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from at dusk. And she's lying here, FYI. Um, when it came time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go, uh, go, go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. It's just fun. In the Bible, in the original language, in Hebrew, uh, there's all this wordplay that's going on. Like they come to dig up facts about the land, but they end up buried by it in the flax. They came to see the land, um, but they end up like under the flax, so they can't see anything. They go hide in a woman's house, but they end up in the most visible place in the house entirely on the roof, exposed to everybody. But anyway, that's just fun facts. You should read the Bible sometime. It's, it's interesting. Um, verse 8, there's no reason for this to happen. Why would you ever join a losing side. Verse eight, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up onto the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroy, destroyed, for those of you who weren't there. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab, that makes no earthly sense. There's no reason under heaven for you to join up to a losing side like this ragtag of travelers who weren't even an army camped outside this heavily fortified city of your own people. Except for the fact that she believed. She believed in that God 
And she believed that that God was maybe the only one who had the power to change her story, her label, from Rahab the prostitute to Rahab the mother of kings. There's another guy, there's another guy, Matthew, the tax collector, who picked up a label of being a tax collector until he met Jesus. Jesus comes to his booth one day and says, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew leaves the booth and follows after Jesus. And afterwards, Matthew was known not as the tax collector. Matthew was known with his new name as Matthew the disciple, as Matthew the martyr. And when Matthew sits down to write out the story of Jesus, and he's trying to connect it into this, this Jewish heritage, he's sitting down and he's writing down the family tree of Jesus. And he wants us to know that, that Salmon was the father of Boaz. And then he writes, he writes one of only a few handful of women included in the family tree of Jesus. He says, whose mother's name was Rahab. And then Matthew goes on and says, Rahab, the mother of Obed. Obed the, uh, <laughs> Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of, and, and Matthew says, David. And it's like, drops Mike. David, like David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, David. Rahab was the great, great, great grandmother of David. And then Matthew goes, but wait, there's more. Picks the mic back up, continues on the family line and says, no, 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 it's not just Rahab is the mother of David. Rahab is the mother, the great, great grandmother of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the king of kings, the greatest king in the universe. And then backing all the way up to Rahab, you go, Rahab the prostitute. Oh, no, no, no. Rahab, the mother of kings. That's your new name. Because listen, when, when labels describe your past, God defines your future. Labels may describe your past, but God will define your future. He did it then, and he's continually, he's doing it yet today. I got one more story, if I can, about, um, about Dirk growing up. And the labels that I wore, see that stuff about dirt or jerk or that other thing, it didn't really bother me all that much. But there was one that kind of stuck. There was one that did. And that was the label that maybe some of you have, have worn as well. Or maybe your kids have worn the label of one of those kids. You know one of those kids when a teacher comes to the classroom in second grade not your classroom teacher, but a different teacher, an outside teacher, a specialist, and reads from a, from a name to pull that student out of the class to give a little remedial help to. Coming into the classroom and reading Dirk Van Eyck and being one of the only students to stand up and, and walk out. Being one of those students meant going with that specialist to work on saying a few things that I had trouble saying. It was a speech therapist because, because I couldn't speak well. Yeah, my R's would all turn into W's, which is very unfortunate when everybody in my family had, almost has a uh, name with an R in it. So Mountain and Bwayan and Jeremy and Duke. 
is adorable as a first grader, but at some point it's a little distracting, right? And not to mention that the teacher who brought me out of that classroom was named Mrs. Wino, which didn't help my case at all as a second grader. But I remember hour after hour and day after day and week after week, all year long and into the next as well, just working on speaking and being labeled as one of those kids that had to get pulled out. And it has the power, doesn't it? To describe our past that happened, that is happening. But isn't it also true that God has a way of defining your future? of telling you whose you are? Isn't it so true that God is the one who has the right to give us labels and to give us names? Isn't it true that God is our manufacturer? God is the one who made us. God is the one who owns us and reigns over us. That God is the one who bought us back. Isn't it true what Rahab learned that day and what we're all still learning here today? is that the God who made us gets to name us and he names you, church, as a child of God. And isn't it true that the God who reigns over us and owns us, calls us and labels us, not just as bearing the image of God, but church, you are the image of God. And isn't it true that when God had to put a price on you and a label on your name, And he gets to set the price because that baseball card that you had in second grade is not worth what the magazine says that it's worth. The price that something is worth is the price that somebody will pay for it. Economics 101. And when God had to decide what you're worth, child, he said, I am setting the price at nothing short than the life of my one and only son. And it is with the blood of Jesus Christ that I will buy you back. And those facts may describe my past. Those labels may may describe my past, but it's Christ who defines my future. And isn't it ironic that God would take a kid that couldn't speak well and strap a microphone to his face and say, you're gonna share the love and hope and resurrection of Christ with the church every single weekend. Labels define our past. Labels describe our past. God defines your future. Would you stand up with me and let's pray together. What we're gonna do here now is we're gonna bow our heads for a little while and we're gonna close our eyes. And as we do, I wanna give another opportunity to anybody who may be feeling that movement of God to step on out and to join into this baptism experience to show the world that you have been raised with Christ, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to invite anybody who's now hearing the voice of God, audibly or not, this tug in their heart to step on out into the aisle and go to the table in the back. Head on back there right now and get ready to show the world that you have been raised with Christ, that you belong to him and him alone. That even though those labels may describe your past, it's God in Christ who defines your future. Jesus, I thank you for everybody who's ready to make that declaration this morning. Jesus, I thank you for everybody now stepping out of those, those, those aisles to head to that table to show the world that they've been raised with Christ. God, I pray for this new life to take hold.
this new name, this new label to take root into these people's hearts so they know not, God, just who they are, but whose they are, belonging to you. Jesus, I ask for strength. Jesus, I ask for courage today. God, I ask for the road ahead that it will be one marked with challenges to grow, but also profound blessings. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.